Stately plump buck. 933 pages. Stately plump buck mulligan. 110 readers. Stately plump. 70 buck characters. Mulligan. 18 sections. Stately plump buck mulligan. Five months. One book. Stately plump. A hundred years. Mulligan. Stately plump. Friends of Shakespeare and Company read Ulysses by James Joyce. Stately plump Begins buck on mulligan. the 2nd of February, 2022. Stately plump buck mulligan. To listen, subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the all-new Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles, literary director here at the bookshop. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to spend even more of 2022 at Kilometre Zero in Paris, you can now subscribe for just €3 Euros a month. For that, you'll get exclusive access to regular bonus episodes, including an initiation into the world of rare book collecting, the chance to expand your reading horizons with recommendations from our team of specialised and passionate booksellers, hand-picked classic interviews from our archive, and an insight into what makes your favourite writers tick as they answer searching questions from our café's Proust questionnaire. You can now sign up directly in Spotify and Apple Podcasts, or for users of other podcast apps through Patreon. Links to all three are available in the show notes. All money raised through these subscriptions goes to supporting Friends of Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop's non-profit, created to fund our non-commercial activities, from the Upstairs Reading Library to the Writers in Residence programme to our charitable collaborations and our free events. We're very grateful for your support. In the epilogue to Don't Applaud, Either Laugh or Don't, Noam Dwarman, the current owner of New York's Comedy Cellar, says to the author, this was going to be a nice book about the history of the Comedy Cellar. And now it's a book about, you know, about a confrontation in a sense. And I have a whole PTSD from that whole chapter, you know. We'll come on to what whole chapter Dwarman is referring to, but it's hard not to think he's being slightly disingenuous here. After all, how could a book about the comedy cellar, one of the most notorious petri dishes for the controlled experiment in freedom of speech that is stand-up comedy, ever be a nice book? Particularly since the limits or otherwise to freedom of speech, as well as the right and the ability to answer back to that speech, is surely one of the most controversial conversations to be had in this or just about any other age. So Don't Applaud, Either Laugh or Don't was never going to be a nice book. What it is, however, is a fascinating history of a place, an art form, a debate and a controversy that performs the refreshing feat of asking many questions, offering few definitive answers, but leaving the reader informed, satisfied and even moved. With his first book, You Could Do Something Amazing With Your Life, You Are Raoul Moat, and now Don't Applaud Either Laugh or Don't, Andrew Haggardson has demonstrated that he's one of the most innovative and interesting of our non-fiction writers at work today, and I'm delighted to welcome him to our podcast. Andrew, hello. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. Um, I think where I'd like to start is um, on the subject actually about books about stand-up comedy, because it struck me um, when I was when I was reading this that there are actually not only very few good books about stand-up comedy, but actually very few books at all about the the art, the craft, the impact of of stand-up comedy. And I was wondering why do you think that is. Well, they don't sell very well. <laughs> um, I mean, I, that's what I was told before I kind of, before this book kind of did the rounds of publishers and stuff, and we were trying to sell it. You know, a lot of publishers did just come back and just say, even the even the best books about comedy, about stand up, they just don't sell at all. Nobody wants to buy them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think 
you know, there might be some of that in it. They've also got a bad reputation because so many books that come out of the stand-up world are um, autobiographies, which are very lightweight, you know, not great literary, literary endeavours. They, um, you know, so if you pick up a stand-up book, you expect that you're getting that. There are some books about comedy clubs. So this is a book about the comedy seller, the comedy club. Mm. Um, there are books about comedy clubs, which are the same thing, which are just like positive um, anecdotes told about the place in a kind of, you know, oh, remember when kind of way. People aren't used to um, books about stand-up kind of, you know, tackling the thorny issues within the mm. within the industry. Um, so, so I think that, I think, I think you know, it, th- there's a certain tone set for books about stand-up um, and uh, you know, publishers aren't necessarily interested in a different tone from that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's strange, isn't it? Because stand-up as a as a as an art form, as a, um, a, a sort of a sector of the entertainment industry, has only kind of grown and grown and grown over the last um, the last few decades. Um, but it, it put me in mind of something that you were uh, you, you write actually when you're you're talking about how um, Noam Dwoman is worried about how he's going to come off in in this book mm-hmm. uh, about worried about being taken out of context and all of that and you write that the author understands a book is different from a room and that really struck me as perhaps one of the kind of underlying issues often with uh, books about stand-up comedy is that it's such a sort of intangible art form and one that requires a kind of uh, a physical presence and perhaps a kind of a, a physical contact that distilling that and capturing that essence in a book is actually a very challenging thing to do. Yeah. yeah. Adam, you probably, <laughs> you're making a much better point than I ever will about my own book. The, the, no, that's a, that's a big part of it, isn't it? So you, within the room, comedians go and say things and the audience has an understanding of who that comedian is and what they're saying and what their intention is. Um, and they give them a certain leeway to, to, to be transgressive. And if you take what, has been said on the stage, which of course that's that's what stand-up is. It's someone going on a stage and saying something, and then you put it into a book. Well, it removes so much of the context, and so it is really, really, um, it, it it's it's risky for stand-ups to take part in that, to not have control over their own story within a book. So that's, I guess, why they write you know autobiographies and stuff, and they're less um, inclined to kind of uh, you know take part as the subject. As, a, as, mm-hmm. part, as opposed to the author so yeah it, it, people go on stage and they say things which are which are risky and you as an author then you put it in a book well suddenly the comedians lost control of what you're saying there what they're yeah, saying yeah, yeah. And, yeah. um so let's talk specifically about the 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 form of the book itself because i think that's sort of um what you've just been saying feeds into that mm-hmm. because when um when we open the book immediately we realize something quite strange is going on. So it's um, in a very general sense, we might describe it as a, an oral history of, the, of the, the comedy seller. So you speak to lots of people who, um, who were involved in this history from the owner to the comedians to, to, to some of the staff. Mm-hmm. Um, but the organization of this oral history is broadly speaking, anti-chronological. So we begin with the sort of the, the more recent um, uh, controversies, the whole chapter that Noam uh, talks about that we'll come on to, I'm sure. Uh, and then you sort of 
wind the clock back to a perhaps a more a more sort of innocent time for the for the seller. I mean, that's a very sort of a, a very sort of um, uh, simplif- real simplification of what you do with the book. But I'm just curious: did the um, did the, the framing of the book, the structure, the organizing principle, come from the the challenges of writing about stand-up comedy as a subject matter, but also uh, dealing with the the evolution of the history as you were writing the book? There were kind of two reasons. One of them is, so I kind of see this as a biography of the comedy seller. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the problems with biography often is you get those initial boring chapters where you're mm-hmm. not really interested in because the person that that is being written about hasn't done anything particularly noteworthy yet, you know? Um, so how, and people come up with all different ways of, of, of figuring that out. With this book, so the, the thing that you... I kind of keep alluding to is Louis C.K. He got in a lot of trouble. Uh, he was written about by the New York Times for sexual misconduct. And he is, this is his home club. So a lot of the book is about Louis C.K. But if people had to go through the, the creation of the club, it's early years, you know, a couple of decades worth of it becoming the club that it became before they got to the Louis C.K. stuff. I just thought they might be bored or frustrated or, um, you know, just feel like get to the point um and so i decided to flip it around and kind of start with all the louis ck stuff and then go backwards so that was one reason is it is a, it was a you know a logistical reason in terms of writing a biography mm-hmm. the other reason was we're in the in this whole i know culture war is as a phrase is this kind of you know it's something if someone says the phrase culture war you, you you have certain thoughts about that person, but I'm just going to use it as shorthand. <laughs> but this this culture war that you know is going on at the moment, these these um, these, these disagreements between different people about words that we should say, or, or you know, all various things. The the it's very very fraught um, at the moment, and I wanted to kind of see how we got to where we are now, and to do that, I wanted to go backwards. It's kind of like peeling the onion, peeling the onion, peeling the onion. How did we get here? And 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 that phrase, you know, Stuart Lee's at the beginning of the book, um, mm. in the in the in the British version, um, the it talks about political correctness, you know, and that that kind of phrase political correctness gone mad. So I wanted to look at how can we ended up here? What, what was the benefit of political correctness? Why did we stop saying certain words and stuff? Because that's where it becomes complicated and complex for me um, you know if, you, if you're going to say oh we should be allowed to say whatever we want to say now well do you want to still say the things that people were saying on stage in the 1970s and the 1980s mm-hmm. you know so then it becomes complicated and suddenly you have to reassess your own arguments about free speech yeah, and things yeah, like yeah. that i think we'll, we'll, we'll definitely come on to that a little mm-hmm. bit later but you're staying with the 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 club at the moment yeah. so was the was the seed of this book um the news when it came out about Louis C.K. or did it was this kind of the the project your your interest in the comedy seller as a as an institution um, sort of did that did it predate that? It, it yeah. Pre, I mean, I first wrote about the comedy seller back in two thousand twelve, I think it was, and I've written about it quite a few times in various magazines and newspapers and things like that. Um, I, I I was really interested in the group of comedians who were working out their material there, who used this as their kind of like gym including one of them was Louis C.K., but also like Amy Schumer, Chris Rock, and people like this. I was interested in the way they use this club. And then I heard the owner, Noam Dorman, on, a, on an interview, 
and I found him very interesting because it was all about principle for him of you know trying not to limit what people could say, trying not to base what people were saying on his own tastes and his own um, uh, um, uh, biases. So mm -hmm. it, I was interested in that. And then over the years, I heard audience members and people in the media and things kind of criticizing, this is way before the Louis C.K. stuff became public uh, and I didn't know about it. The, the, people were criticizing what the comedians were saying on stage. And I kind of was quite familiar with some of these comedians and I felt quite defensive of them. And I thought, mm -hmm. actually, you're kind of misrepresenting these people. The people, the way that you're describing them isn't actually how I think they are. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it started off as that. That was the kind of impetus for it. It was, it was, you know, actually, I would like to look at what these people are saying on stage and show actually what their intention was when they were on stage mm -hmm. making those jokes, you know. I think it could be interesting for our listeners who haven't been to the Comedy Cellar, and I, I've never, never been myself, to get a mm -hmm. sense of the sort of the the physical space mm -hmm. we're, we're talking about here. Because I think when people hear names like uh, Louis C.K. and Chris Rock, Amy Schumer, I think it's it's sort of it's quite sort of it feels almost incongruous to imagine them in this very small cramped basement in Manhattan. But that's essentially mm -hmm. what the the Comedy Cellar is, right? Yeah, yeah. So it it was. It used to be, so it's it's on McDougal um, Street in Greenwich Village in New York. Um, it, it, it was a music club. It was a kind of a, a Middle Eastern dance club with a band and stuff in the 1960s and 70s. And then in the 1980s, the, the, this basement was converted into a comedy club. There's actually two floors to it. There's, upstairs is this thing called the Olive Tree Cafe, and it's owned by Noam Dorman. Both these, these, these places are owned by Noam Dorman. The Olive Tree is a, is, a, is a beautiful restaurant with a bar and stuff. At the back of there, there's a table, which is kind of like the comedian's green room. So they all go and hang around there. You're only allowed to sit at this table if, you, if you're a comedian who works in the comedy cellar. That's at the back of this room. So you go and sit in the Olive Tree, and you used to see, like, you know, Louis C.K., Amy Schumer, Chris Rock and stuff sitting at this table, which, which is quite strange, and you don't normally have that kind of thing going on in a restaurant. Then there's some internal stairs, or you can go through these external stairs down to the actual comedy room. Um, and it's, yeah, low ceiling, dark, very beautifully decorated, with, like illustrations everywhere and things like this. But it's tiny. It's, it, it, I think the capacity is about 120 people, which sounds more than you would. If you picture it, the, the, there are tables all over the place and chairs, but all really crammed together, and it is small. Um, and so, yeah, we, we, we could fit about 120 people into the bookshop. And, yeah, you know, that is you know, just to give a sense of this is a pretty, it is a pretty tight space. Yeah, it's really tight and low, really low ceiling. So when the comedians are standing on the stage, you know, they, they often put their hand against the ceiling and stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> and, and the reason it became so famous and popular was they would have these normal shows on in the, in the 90s and, and early 2000s. But then these really famous com comedians who were performing there all the time started um, becoming famous, such as Louis C.K., Amy Schumer and stuff. But there were also already famous comedians, such as Jerry Seinfeld, would go along there as well. And these, these comedians, once they became super famous, were never on the, on the, announced on the bill. So you would go in there and you're expecting to see kind of five comedians who you don't really know. And then suddenly Louis C.K. or Chris Rock or Amy Schumer... Um, would, would 
drop drop in and do this set for 20 minutes, Dave Chappelle, people like this, for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, working out their material. So it wasn't great material yet. They were still working it out. But it was exciting for everyone to see these famous comedians come in. And, you know, it, it cost them $10 for a ticket or something like that. Yeah. And and you're seeing these best comedians in the world in this room for 100 people. So it was, it was very exciting. So that's how we got this great reputation. And then it became kind of like that restaurant, Elaine's, you know, that the, the kind of famous... New York restaurant where everyone used to hang out there. You'd have like Katy Perry there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Robert De Niro was hanging out. Meryl Streep was there. All these people were kind of in the comedy cellar because they wanted to be around. And, and, and you know, there was lots of powerful people going there. They would, you know, some people were making films and things like this. So, yeah, there were, all these famous people started hanging out and it was like the place to be. It was written about favorably by, you know, New York Magazine, New York Times and everything. It was, it was really popular. And I mean, at the moment, you say that sort of um, stand-up comedy is a a New York thing, mm. um, and of course, so the Comedy Cellar wasn't the the first stand-up comedy club uh, in New York. So, why, what what do you think it was about the the space or the way that it was run or the location that made it sort of really made it the nexus for all of these um, sort of well-known and kind of soon-to-be well-known comedians? Yeah, so it it wasn't the most popular comedy club in the 1980s it was a it was a it was a you know club down in the village the the more popular clubs were further up manhattan island and um known dwarman owns it now but his dad manny dwarman used to own it and one of the reasons so i've spoken to a lot of the comedians and they've told me what they liked about it um one of the reasons was manny dwarman so he used to hang around at this table this table where the, it's called the comedian's table and he would he would argue with them and debate with them about he, he was from Israel and he would debate about lots of Middle Eastern politics but also wider politics and, and about cultural things and stuff and he would give them books to read and give them articles mm-hmm. and stuff and they liked being challenged like that mm-hmm. and they also liked the fact that instead of having a green room where you were close to the way they were, they were in this like lively um, restaurant which was beautifully decorated and, and it, 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 it felt like a nice place to be. So they liked it that they could go and sit at this table and, and spend their evening there. Because the comedians, when they're doing these spots, they're, they're often like, you know, dropping in on various clubs during the evening to go and do spots, 15 minute spots, mm-hmm. 20 minute spots. So this was a place where they could like hang out between spots, you know? So they really liked that. So there was that. Then there was, there was also, you know, and they liked Manny Dwarman, they liked being challenged by him, they liked discuss talking with him. And also the fact that um, the, the comedy cellar in the 1980s, it did start to get busy. They managed to drag people in. So they always, the comedians always knew there was going to be an audience there. Whereas mm-hmm. some other clubs, you know, struggled to fill it up on a weekday night. So they knew that there was going to be an audience there usually. And that's what comedians need. So the, the comedy set clubs benefit from having these superstar comedians drop in because that creates mm-hmm. a buzz. But the, but the superstar comedians really need an audience to test out their material. That's the only way they're going to work out if these jokes are any really good or not. So the comedy seller started to get busy so the comedians could depend on them having an audience. So that was an, yeah. those, those reasons together kind of seemed to be why the comedy seller became successful. Just as a quick aside, um, you say about having an audience. I did find it there when they were, um, no one was talking about the, the beginnings of the comedy seller, mm-hmm. that there were, they were talking about sort of, 
uh, starting shows without audiences at mm. times. Like this, sort of the I remember when I when I was a teenager, I worked in a cinema, and always, you know, when sometimes you'd always have to run the film just in case somebody came in ten minutes late, even if no tickets had been sold. Yeah, uh, which you know, obviously, the film is not going to be offended by the lack of an audience. <laughs> but I just love the idea of putting a yeah. comedian on a stage to do their jokes to essentially an empty room, uh, so that if anybody pokes their head in. Uh, then you know they would see that something's going on. That, that was in the nineteen. So it, it, the club started in, in the early nineteen eighties, and it was popular then. But then in the nineteen nineties, um, early nineteen nineties, there was the recession, and also um, the stand-up comedy. There was lots of articles written about this at the time. Just kind of went bust. People weren't interested mm-hmm. anymore in it in it anymore, and people weren't sure why that was. You know, whether it was because there was so much stand-up on television. Um, or whether it was because, uh, you know, people just didn't like the kind of stand-up that was being done anymore. Uh, it became a bit cheesy and something to be ridiculed. And um, so, yeah, that was, they were literally empty rooms. So people like, yeah, I talked to Louis C.K. about this and he, he talked about this in the book where, you know, um, literally performing to an empty room, nobody there whatsoever, but they had to go on because if, yeah, it, it was kind of drop-in shows then. So that when they got yeah. some people in off the street, they just needed to show that something was happening, and then just drag them in. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but coming back to the character of Manny Dwarman, because I found him absolutely fascinating. Um, mm. Because I suppose I sort of lazily laboured under the assumption that somebody who had run a place like the Comedy Cellar would be broadly liberal. I mean, we assume, I think, often that. Uh, uh, comedians have kind of, you know, broadly liberal, possibly slightly left-wing views, as we assume most people in the entertainment industry do. Whereas, mm. in fact, Manny was a bit, quite a kind of uh, complex. Um, you describe him as uh, deeply conservative, or he is described as deeply conservative in mm. the book, but also a, a pot smoker who hated the hippie culture. Um, but I think the thing that is most interesting about him is the way you, you referred to earlier that he he challenged and engaged with the comedians like I think it's Louis C.K. but I think a couple of other people talk about the way they kind of learnt to argue and learnt to debate from from Manny because he wouldn't mm. accept a lot of the kind of um, I guess kind of laziness that we um, we often bring to discussions of kind of you know certain uh, I guess assumptions on our parts or certain sort of uh, preconceptions that we, we bring to our arguments. And it seems that Manny at these discussions uh, with the comedians around the tables was almost sort of not only sort of educating them on about facts, but also teaching them how to how to debate and how to think in a yeah. way. No, I mean, his son, Noam, is the same and it's exhausting, to be honest, <laughs> when you talk to him. Because, so Manny Dorman, he died in, in 2003, I think it was, but yeah, no owns the club, and they were both the same. Yeah, so it what what they it's completely correct in in what they do, which is if you're going to make an argument, you better have something to back it up. You can't just say something and then uh, think that you know by saying it makes it true. Um, and so yeah, Louis C.K. I think it is talks about that where they were having an argument about um, after the invasion of uh, Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2003 you know um, what, what, why was that done was it to, for oil or was it to you know for democracy or you know, why was it done they have an argument about that and um, and quite properly you know 
and Manny Dorman pulled up Louis C.K. on it and said, you know, you're, you're saying this stuff, but you've got no, you got, you got to see in George Bush's head. You don't know what he's actually thinking. Why don't you base your argument on what's actually happened and what's actually being said? Um, and that's exactly what Noam does. It does. If he'll sit down at a, at a table with you and you'll start discussing some politics. And if you don't know what you're talking about, he just starts pulling it to pieces. And you, you, you know, it, it, it's, it, but it's the right way to do things, really, you know, even if it does make a conversation very difficult, especially if you don't know what you're talking about, you know, you just have to admit it and just say, yeah, I need to go away and read about this. And so that's what Manny Dorman would do with the comedians when he realised that they didn't know what they were talking about. He'd say, well, you should read this book and you should read this article, you know. Um, and, and you talked about him being deeply conservative. Um, he, I, I think he's, you know, and Noam, his son, has described him as this, is kind of libertarian which, which, which again has these, you know, bad connotations these days. But I, I think that is what he what he was in some ways, and a conservative in other ways. Um, you know, he's very very pro Israel, um, and then uh, you know, I but in in the U.S. politics and domestic politics, you know, I I I I, I don't think he voted, but I think he could have voted either way at times. You know? mm-hmm. So let's let's come on to that idea of kind of libertarianism and how it connects to uh, free speech and how free speech connects to uh, comedy because that is really one of the central discussions of of this book is essentially the uh, I suppose there's, there's different levels to it there's the the right or otherwise for comedians to say what they want to on stage mm-hmm. uh, and that could be the, the the legal right but also the right accorded to them by the owner of the club, in this case, uh, Noam Dwarman or Manny before him. And then on the other side, there is the what might be considered the sort of the right of reply um, of the audience, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whether it is acceptable to to heckle, for example, if you disagree with what with what a comedian is saying. And I want to I want to come on to these uh, two subjects kind of a little bit separately. So beginning with the the subject of, um, of free speech. Um, it does seem to be that Manny first and then Noam are very principled on that subject, that they are not going to, uh, it's quite straightforward, it's that they're not going to tell people what they can say and they are not necessarily going to stop somebody coming back because of what they have said previously, if they've upset people or offended people. Does that sound like a, a sort of a fair summary of their, their position? Yeah. Yes, that is the position that they would say. Yes, mm-hmm. and go on. Yeah, yeah go on. Um, and so I'm curious about the the way that plays today. I guess yeah. because there are always going to be a limited number of slots at somewhere like the Comedy Cellar. Mm-hmm. I suppose what I want to ask is: Can free speech be the only criteria for? allowing people to perform at the Comedy Cellar when there are a limited number of spots. Surely, if you know what somebody's views are uh, and you're recording them a spot over somebody else, are you in some way aligning yourself with those views or supporting those views over the views of the person that you're not giving the spot to? Yes. (laughs) Yes, I think so. So, so, yeah, Noam in the book is he's really great about this, which is making the argument of, of he's very, very good at sticking with his principles. 
He really does. Even through great criticism from some of the biggest newspapers and websites in the world, he's stuck with his principles, which was admirable. Um, and, and he says he, he's not going to decide what people can and can't say on stage. Um, if the audience is laughing, it's up to the audience to decide. And then people, these people will continue getting booked. If the audience isn't laughing, then these people won't get booked. I've always thought, actually, if the audience was laughing and and, and someone was saying something outrageously racist on the stage, then I think he probably wouldn't want them on the stage anymore. Um, and he might come back and say, well, the audience wouldn't be laughing in that case. And, and, then, and then, you you know, this, this might be correct, so it's a tricky one. But I, I don't think he would let someone go on stage and just, you know, say some really awful racist stuff, um, which was coming from a from a, a, a viewpoint of real racism. I don't think he would have done that. Um, but, you know, could be wrong. And then, yeah, I, I think representation is is the the big thing, and I think this is what the comedy sellers grappled with over the past, you know, since I wrote the book, even um, four or five years, which is diversifying the lineup. And I, I was in New York, I don't know, three months ago, something like that, and um, and I went to the comedy cellar, and the lineups are completely different to what they used to be five years ago, certainly ten years ago. You know, it did used to be mainly men. Um, it, it, you know, it, it was it was uh, black comedians and white comedians, but it was mainly men, um, and there was lots of um, comedians who were inclined towards maybe conservative views. Um, mm-hmm. um, and now, when you go along, I, I don't think it is that at all. I think they've really diversified their lineups, uh, and and I've always asked, you know, is this a deliberate thing? And, and kind of the answer seems to be. That is that it's not. They're just booking the best people, um, but I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure. I really believe that. I think they've deliberately possibly diversified. And it. And so yeah, it's a, it feels like a completely different club in terms of what's being said on stage now than it was ten years ago. You know, though, though, a lot of those more kind of reactionary um, comedians don't perform very much there anymore. Yeah. It's it, it's interesting to know to know whether you know what what lies behind that because. I, I think there probably is the dynamic of changing audiences as well. Like I thought, I thought um, mm-hmm. one of your interviewees, Lisa Liza Traeger, was mm-hmm. was really interesting about this. Actually, the sort of pointing out that sort of this idea of like it's either it's either it's funny or it's not uh, is kind of bullshit in a way. That it's sort of what one finds funny, uh, and even what one sort of will publicly demonstrate uh, that one finds funny is mm-hmm. so kind of coded based on. Uh, your position in society, your your background, your experiences. Mm-hmm. So you know, she said that uh, I think that the men tend to think like, oh yeah, it's either funny or it's not. But in fact, what they're finding funny is so completely determined by the uh, yeah by by, yeah. by, by their, their lifestyles and upbringing. Yeah, uh, Bonnie McFarlane, another comedian who I interviewed, in it she, she says a similar thing, which is you know, comedy clubs have created this. She calls it a bro audience. Um, this is all comedy clubs in, in New York, she was describing, and in, in America, wider America, I think she was describing. They created this bro audience. And so when the kind of bro comedians got on stage, the audience loved it. And then when when she got on stage, the audience would be like, oh, here we go, you know. And she, and she said, so it's a self-fulfilling thing. You know, bookers were like, oh, well, you know, all the guys come in and make the audience laugh. And then when we get women come in, they don't make them laugh. And she said, that's because you've created an audience for that. Um, and yeah, and I think that, I mean, I think that has changed at 
lots of comedy clubs now. It, 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 to be honest, the audience at the Comedy Cellar, I always thought, seemed pretty mixed in terms of, you know, women and men, um, ever since I've been going there. But certainly the the lineups that seem it feels like there are a lot more female comedians going on now. And yeah, Lisa Traeger's right. <laughs> it's like, yeah, the, the the male audience tends to laugh more at the male comedians, I think. Or they used to. Um, I used to notice that at Comedy Cellar, and then the, the the female audiences laugh a lot at the female comedians. You know, it's it's people have different tastes, and so that's why places like the Comedy Cellar changing their lineups because they realize that you know people want different things from different comedians mm-hmm. and on the subject of um of heckling because um mm. i i understand that the the comedy seller has a sort of relatively hard line on this or at least it had to a certain extent that if sort of if people heckled then they would essentially be asked to leave and sort of mm-hmm. escorted from the uh from, from the room um which is sort of when i when i heard that i i, I struggle with it because i think um you know, having been to quite a lot of comedy in the past, there's there's different types of heckling. There's your kind of, you know, your kind of drunk stag party heckling who are sort of interfering with the show, disrupting the rhythm, uh, ruining it for uh, for other people. And mm-hmm. that sort of, I I can completely understand that that kind of heckling would be uh, would be discouraged and would be um, would be, yeah would even be even be banned. Mm-hmm. But then I guess you have the other sort of heckling, and this. It's particularly important when you have comedians who are dealing with controversial or sensitive subjects mm-hmm. is that if somebody in the audience uh, disagrees with the point of view that's being put across by the comedian, if they are then uh, forbidden from uh, expressing this this disagreement, mm-hmm. that to me in some way seems to be a little bit hypocritical if your defence of the comedian on stage is one of freedom of speech yeah like so much in the book i really struggle to i never i don't think there is an absolute rule that you can create on any of this stuff it all comes down to particular who the particular individuals are what the particular behavior or words are and that that's the only way to decide it with this so i saw sarah pascoe british comedian a couple of years ago and she was really great at the start of her set she said look this isn't a, an interactive show so please don't say anything. I don't want, you know, heckling and stuff like this. Uh, she might not use the word heckling, but she's basically telling the audience, setting the rules at the start, and it was really effective, I thought. And the comedy seller, yeah, there's, there's signs everywhere saying if, if you, if, you know, don't talk to you in the show and, um, you know, you're, warnings about that sort of stuff. And they do, they throw people out if you start heckling or you shout out during the show and stuff like that. And I'm, I'm the same as you. I, so in the book, I've got an interview with Andy Delatour, who's a British mm-hmm. comedian, and he makes this really great point, which is, you know, if you're going to go up, it's, 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 you're exactly right. It's different if it's just drunken stag dudes or something, saying, you know, being, trying to make it all about them, because that's frustrating for the whole audience. But when a comedian goes on stage and says something that they know is provocative, such as in this book, comedian Kevin Brennan goes on stage and says a joke about terrorism and uh, Muslims, um, you know that that's a provocative joke and people are going to, you know, might react badly to that joke. Mm-hmm. Um, and someone does. And so in this book, I kind of try and interview some of the audience members who, who, who've um, objected to what's being said on stage. And a, an audience member, she does, she objects to it and she, she calls him racist. And then uh, she's thrown out. And 
I agree with Andy Diller too, which is if you're going to go on stage and say this stuff, you have to expect some kind of reaction, at least sometimes, and you have to be able to deal with that reaction. And you have a microphone, so you should be able to deal with that, with that reaction. Mm-hmm. And yeah, this, I think Noam runs the comedy cellar extremely well, obviously, in, in, um, and I agree with lots of his principles. Uh, but this is one where I disagree with him, where someone gets thrown out for that. I, I, and, and he says, you know, it, you would just have people shouting out all the time. But I don't think that's the case. I think people would still do it very rarely. But I, I, I think that would add a, a, a good element to the show if someone was saying something. And I, I think I think it would enable you to have more leeway on stage to say mm-hmm. things if there was going to be, you know, people were going to object and then you had to handle that objection. I think it would give you greater leeway on stage. Um, whereas, as, yeah, as it is, people get escorted out by the bouncer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing that I um, that really appeals to me about uh, a lot of the way that uh, Noam runs the Comedy Cellar is as a kind of, at least how he articulates it, a kind of a um, <clears throat> a place for experimentation mm-hmm. um, and sort of, you know, a place for p- people to to test things and to sort of sort of to push the bar and to and to and to try things out. And yet sometimes it sort of tips over into the idea almost of kind of the the performance of stand-up comedy as in some way an almost kind of sacred activity <laughs> in some way. Um, and that does seem to be in a sort of an interesting tension um, at the heart of the book and at the heart of the sort of the, the different ways that comedians express themselves. Mm-hmm. It's like some people sort of, yeah, do seem to uh, consider it as something sort of fundamentally... Um, fundamentally sacred and fundamentally good what they're doing and kind of pushing the bars and testing these things. Mm-hmm. And then you have also this uh, kind of corrective quote almost from Jerry Seinfeld, who at the moment is kind of like, oh, you know, um, you know, people talk about being so special, but it's not, it's nothing. It's just jokes. It's just we're, jokes yeah. we're doing jokes. <laughs> and there's always a sense of like comedians hold nothing sacred except comedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems to be an interesting tension. Yeah, well... I think the, some of the comedians do feel like that, you know, they, they, you know, it's like that whole speaking truth, you know, this, this kind of thing. Um, I don't think, uh, to, to be honest, I don't think Noam thinks that at all. <laughs> I don't think he holds, I don't think he holds stand-up comedy in hugely high regard at all. He's more of a musician. He holds music in high regard. You know, he, he, he loves the music side that they, they kind of do there as well. Um, what he, what he holds in high regard is not specifically stand-up, what happens on a stand-up stage, it's free speech. It's, it's, so it's regardless of whether it's being said on a stage or whether it's being said in print or it's being said in a conversation on a podcast, on the radio, he thinks people should say what they truly believe and then defend what they actually believe. That's, mm-hmm. that's what he holds really sacred. And that's the only reason I think he defends comedians. It's nothing to do with stand-up. I don't think he's particularly, you know, he's, he, he runs a comedy club, but he treats it as a business. It's, it's, mm-hmm. he, he enjoys comedians because they're more likely to say what they believe or to say mm-hmm. the, the things that other people would hold back from saying. That's why he enjoys being around comedians. But um, yeah, he doesn't hold the, the art form sacred. He holds mm-hmm. the ability for people to say what they actually believe sacred. Which is kind of exemplified by um, the fact that he also runs, uh, relatively recently started running debates at the Comedy Cellar as mm. well. Like it's sort of so it's it's almost like there's some, there was something about the comedy that didn't quite cover um, everything he wanted to to do with the space and everything he you know he felt and he believed in in relation to freedom of speech. Yeah, so uh, I think yeah he started. I mean, one of them was on C-SPAN. It was like quite high level debates with 
you know, high level speakers. Um, he wants to hear those people. But I think it was also an excuse to kind of meet those people, to invite them down to the comedy cellar. They're the people that he wants around there, you know. And and um, people on both sides, and including controversial people like Anne Coulter, who, you know, I talk a bit about that in the book, you know. He's not afraid to have those people around. He, he wants those people around. And then he wants to see if people can um, grapple with their arguments, as he says in the book. You know, if it, it, it's very easy to dismiss people based on, you know, you're a baddie or you're not a baddie, you know, but he wants people to actually grapple with the arguments that, that, that these individuals are making. And that's why he wanted the debates, I think. So he'd try and invite, uh, you know, his panels of four, usually two on each side, and he, he'd want them to argue as strongly as possible. Andrew Sullivan was another controversial one in there, you know, um, Alan Dershowitz. Um, and he, and, and he'd, he'd want to see these people and see if, you know, their, their arguments stood water, held water. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think one, one thing that's, that's interesting as well is the sort of the, um, the way he treats the, 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 let's say, the material of the debates and the material of comedy. Uh, and I think it's very telling about, um, about comedy uh, itself, actually, is that the debates, as far as I know, like he, he records them, he, uh, there's something that I think you can, you can watch online, like you mm-hmm. don't necessarily have to be in the room to get a sense of, uh, of, of of what's at work here, mm-hmm. whereas if you try and record some, you know, a a a, a bit of a, a stand up set mm-hmm. on your phone, for example, there are incredibly, you know, you'll, you'll be kicked out mm-hmm. again. You know, there are signs everywhere saying um, saying, you know, do not do not record this. You know, mm-hmm. There is a there is one one camera which is sort of essentially the security camera of the of the comedy cellar that records, but you know, uh, nobody else is is allowed to do that. And I think that's that's very in- interesting about stand-up as an art form, and it's something that Stuart Lee talks about in the in the introduction. This idea of of context being important, and one of the things that can often get comedians into hot water today is an element of their their set being taken out of the context of the room and out of the context of the set, mm-hmm. and being at least they might argue fundamentally misunderstood. Yeah, it's Stuart Lee, but it's brilliant, I think, which is, to be, I was, yeah, he talked about there being inverted commas on the stage, you know? It used to be that people understood that there were inverted commas on the stage, and now it gets recorded in, from an angle where you can't see those inverted commas anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Stuart Lee had had such a lot to put up with when when he did the Jerry Spring of the Opera and the people who were trying to get him shut down, you know. So that's the reason why I went to him to talk about it because I knew he'd done a lot about free speech and talking about. Mm-hmm. But he, Stuart Lee, like quite a few of the comedians now, they seem to have changed their position, which isn't, um, and I find it quite sad. Which is, you know, it, it, it's they, they don't seem to defend free speech very much anymore. It's mm-hmm. you know, I, I guess Stuart Lee says. You know, you can still say whatever you want to say. You just have to be able to justify it. Um, but then he also says you have to make sure that your intention goes through every bit of your act, like Blackpool in a stick of rock. You know, mm-hmm. um, so you can't go on stage and kind of take those exaggerated positions anymore because mm-hmm. somebody might film it and think that you that is your actual position. You know, um, and he says it's quite sad, and I do think it's quite sad that. And it's the same with, I find, I find it the same with writing now as well. Even when I was writing this book, we're all writing in fear of 
what might be taken out of context and used against us and have opportunities taken away from us because of something that you didn't even mean in the way that it's being represented, you know? So mm-hmm. I, I find that quite sad for comedy and I find it quite sad for writing in general. Is, is there any way that it's kind of um, comparable to what happened with the um, uh, the changes to comedy in uh, in Britain in the sort of the late seventies and early eighties with the kind of the alternative scene where mm-hmm. where essentially changes in the in the culture meant that uh, comedy had to had to evolve and rethink itself and rethink what it did. I mean, I know in Britain that was a sort of a response to what was essentially uh, a dominant kind of reactionary position mm-hmm. in uh, in a lot of a lot of stand up comedy, but I, I'm wondering is sort of like this. I think that Stuart Lee talks about with this, you know, the, this this idea of the stick of rock. Is it perhaps not necessarily a danger to free speech, but it's just the sort of the the art form itself will evolve uh, based on these new pressures. I mean, hasn't is that always something that's just always been the way? Yeah, it might do, and. Um... I'm like a 41-year-old guy now, (laughs) so I'm aware of this. And, and, you know, when I started doing the book, I talk a bit about this at the beginning of the book as well, where I had this, like, horrified feeling of, of, like, because I'm saying, come on, these comedians are just trying to be funny, leave them alone. I thought, would I have been defending, so we have anyone who's not from Britain, but we have this comedian, Bernard Manning, who used to say racist Mm -hmm. stuff on stage in the 70s and early 80s, I think. Um, He might have said it even later. But he was popular then. And it's like, would I have been defending his right to go on stage and say this racist stuff, you know? Because I I, I grew up in the 1980s and 1990s. I was pleased when people like that weren't allowed to say the things that they had said before. So, yeah, I I, 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 I hope, hopefully these things are just evolving and it's all going to feel fine. But there's a line in, um, in, in the book where no... He says it feels like we're all living in a hostage video, you know, and mm-hmm. and and maybe maybe that is just my age or something. I don't know, but it does feel like that at times. That that you because most of us don't want to go on stage and say something racist, but you do have things that you want to talk about, and you feel like even if you're going to talk about them in in a responsible and careful way you just won't get into that subject. I mean, there's a lot, we, we all know the examples on social media and stuff like this, where you just stay away from certain debates because it, because there's, there's, there's no reason to it. There's no rationality to it. And it all just becomes very nasty very quickly and can cost you an awful lot. Um, so yeah, I, I do feel like that's, that's not a great place to be where there is, you know, there are certain subjects that lots of us just avoid talking about in public or even in private emails and things like that, because you you just don't know what it could cost you. you Yeah. 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 And I think actually, Noam is really interesting on, um, on, on the, on this, on this this subject, actually. I mean, I I like his, um, I assume it's his coinage, what he calls uh, indignagasms. He says, we crave indignagasms, his combination of indignation and orgasms. Yeah. Um, And, but this idea um, of the sort of the, the sensor always getting it wrong so it's not mm. it's not that sort of he he agrees with the things that um that you know some, some of the people who may hold more extreme views are saying but just this idea that's a sort of the 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 cure is becoming worse than the the disease in mm-hmm. a way like sort of uh this it might it might be coming from a sort of a a righteous place mm-hmm. but the potential damage it could do uh is 
it, it, it's, it's worse than perhaps managing the situation in, in different ways. It, yeah. So it, it's very tricky. So I used to think, so I've been, I was doing a PhD and uh, part of it was looking at um, things Tommy Robinson had said, Tommy Robinson, mm-hmm. the, the founder of the English Defence League. Um, and one of the things he talked about was when he got up, when he started being interviewed, so I used to think it was good that he was interviewed on mainstream news and things like this, because I wanted to see, you know, him, him challenged. Mm-hmm. But then he talked about how support for his organization skyrocketed. He, I think he used the phrase skyrocketed when he started getting coverage, when he started appearing on mainstream news and stuff. So then I thought, you know, maybe it's not good to platform people, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, which probably seems very obvious to people. But to me, I thought, oh, you shouldn't take platforms away from people. They should, you know, say what they want to say and then you shouldn't challenge them. But yeah, support for him skyrocketed off the back of that. And then when he got taken off social media and stuff, support seems to have dropped dramatically for him. You know, he, he, he's failed in, in several things that he's tried to do um, recently. So, yeah. So that, that's when I don't really know the answer, which which, which is... Should we allow people to say what they want to say, or should we not allow people to say what they want to say? Um, because clearly, Tommy Robinson, when we allow him, we give him the platform to say what he wants to say, support increases. We, we take away the platform, support decreases. But like Noam says, someone then has to decide what people can say and has to decide who can say it. Um, and who gets to decide that? So, for example, Twitter, then they start taking away accounts from certain people. Mm-hmm. That, it, it does seem like, well, yes, initially it feels like good. Yes, we'll stop these people from saying things and stop them from getting support. But somewhere down the line, that is going to go very badly wrong, where people are controlling mm-hmm. who can speak and who and what they can say. And so I think so I think kind of Noah was right about like the, 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 it, the, the, the cure is worse than the disease eventually. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's, it's it's that old sort of chestnut of sort of it's all it's all very well closing people's uh, Twitter accounts until it's somebody that you agree with or or you yourself. And then it sort of it suddenly feels, you know, it suddenly feels very personal and it suddenly feels very wrong. Um, it, it, exactly. Say, and, like, and that will happen. You know, it will it will happen where people because because you're not in control of the people who are going to control it. <laughs> and, and all it does is expand. So, you know, we're, right, we're going to have people who are policing what is said on, on social media. Well, suddenly you're going to have to have lots more and that'll just keep increasing and increasing. And... Yes. Yeah. yeah. And of course, um, coming on to, um, to Louis C.K. specifically, because, um, I mean, we've talked a lot about, um, about free speech, but mm-hmm. that is not actually to imply that particularly that the controversy surrounding Louis C.K. wasn't actually because of things that he had said, like no. as a as a comedian. And, you know, I've watched a lot of Louis C.K. over the years, and I think probably one of the or if not the most talented stand up of his generation, like a sort of uh, brilliant, brilliant stand up, mm. and, but also relatively uncontroversial in his uh, in, the, in his material a lot mm-hmm. of the time. Like, you know, they were, he would get in trouble for certain things, but he certainly wasn't one of the most kind of um, criticised um, stand-up comedians. But what, in fact, actually happened with Louis C.K. was that he was, uh, his articles were written about him where he, it was revealed that he had been, he'd been exposing himself to um, to female comedians and using, uh, at least the allegations, when using his 
power and influence in the industry to uh, to, to prevent them from from talking about it. Uh, and I guess that, in a way, it's sort of it's connected to the the debate about free speech because it obviously it will you know it's sort of the question is should this these acts of his past mean that he is prevented from from saying what he wants to say now? But it it seems to me that the, like the debate specifically in, in Louis C.K.'s case, needs to be framed slightly differently. Does that oh, yeah. make sense? Yeah, no, I mean, it is. it has to be framed differently. It's, um, the, the phrase that I always use is just because New York Times use it and they've got good lawyers, but it's um, sexual misconduct. <laughs> and this is in the book, so anyone listening, there is stuff in the book about this. And but the New York Times story is still up there, so people should read that if they're not quite sure what we're talking about. And also... Um, Lucy K then put out a statement um, uh, admitting to you know what he had been um, accused of. So it all happened. He said it happened, and then he 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 stopped performing for about a year, and then he went back on at the Comedy Cellar. That was his local club um, on a night when no one wasn't in there. And this is where where this, the book starts. Uh, he, Gnome says he wouldn't have stopped him if he had been there. But yeah, Louis C.K. dropped in and, and went on stage and kind of did a 15-minute set or something like that, which was his first time back after 15, after after a year, after he kind of, you know, his film had been cancelled, all his programmes had been pulled off the streaming services and stuff like this. And he was persona non grata in uh, New York. So it was a big controversy when he was allowed back on stage at the Comedy Cellar. And that was when... But no kept allowing him to go on stage at the Comedy Cellar. And I was over in New York for kind of a few of the shows when Louis C.K. went back on. So I was kind of at the back of the room making notes about how the audience was reacting and things. And people walked out. People were very cross. People were upset. Um, and uh, and suddenly Nome was the focus of, yeah, the global scrutiny from, yeah, you know, Hollywood Reporter, BBC, New York Times, all these places were writing about him and speaking to him about why are you allowing this man Louis C.K. who has admitted that he did what he was accused of back on the stage and then it does become a, a free speech issue because you know if, if, if Louis C.K. wasn't being prosecuted for anything um, so how do you decide whether he's allowed to go on stage and say something he is a comedian after all that's where he he earns his living by going on the stage um, you know, I think some people said, you know, well, you should just go away and just, you know, work work some other job somewhere, do something else. You shouldn't be a comedian anymore. And um, but Louis, uh, but uh, Noam Dwarven thought he should be allowed back on stage and continue to allow him back on stage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's um, yeah, it's it's interesting. I think the way that um, the Noam talks about talks about the Louis C.K. case because he. Um, yeah, he sort of, I, I suppose he draws parallels in, in different ways. So he says, you know, you wouldn't want somebody has, you know, even if they've been, been arrested for a crime and, and served their time, you know, you don't then prevent them from, uh, from, uh, from earning, from earning a living. Mm. Um, and also he sort of says, he made references to people like um, uh, Mike Bill Tyson and, and Mike Tyson, who seemingly have been sort of, um, Sort of welcomed back into uh, to the kind of the entertainment fold in mm. a way that has um, that has uh, so far been been denied Louis C.K. But he also says, uh, and he hasn't done this yet, but he also says like he's worried that at a moment 
he himself known will will blink in a way like people will come for him and mm. he will ultimately sort of throw his hands up and um, is that something deep having got to know Noam and having sort of interviewed him so many times and written about him do you get a sense that he might blink <laughs> um no i don't actually the <laughs> i mean with, with louis ck louis ck is a tremendously powerful comedian still um and I think it still benefits the comedy seller greatly to have him going on the stage and dropping in and doing sets, you know? So mm-hmm. there is that to bear in mind. Um, but I think no continues to allow him to go on there. Yeah. Because of principle, because, you know, he, he's, he's admitted to what some of what he was accused of. Um, but then, you know, he, he still deserves the right to go on stage and say what he wants to say. So, yeah, I, I think, uh, I, don't, I don't think he would blink. I, I think, I think, Notes. He, he's had an awful lot of flack um, over allowing Louis C.K. on the stage. He, he dealt with it. He didn't blink at the time, so I don't see why he would blink now. Um, mm. No, he, he, he and, and and the other thing as well, I think he realised was, despite the global uproar about it, um, on loads of articles, you know, um, loads of podcasts, very angry people. He didn't see that reflected in the in the club you know it, it, some people walked out and they they refunded people who walked out um they, or the, the people who walked out didn't have to pay their bill um he 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 just didn't see it the the globe the uproar reflected in the in the in the club and he said this the same about social media so he he was getting criticized on social media and people were very angry on social media you know somebody said oh we should fire bomb the comedy seller um and he said, but when you switched off social media, it just, you realised that social, what was being said on social media wasn't what was being said in the world around him at all. And, mm-hmm. and it felt totally different. So I think it made him realise that actually, if you, if you can get through that storm of being written about, um, then you should be all right. And, and the, the other thing he said was, um, it showed that he didn't have any skeletons in his closet. You know, he, he said if, if he had had something bad in his past, then it would have come out at that point and it didn't come out. So I think that gave him some strength, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's I suppose that's one of the sort of the uh, characteristics of social media as well, is that the sort of, um, I think John Ronson has written a lot about this as well. Like for, in certain cases, anyway, the storms can be quite fleeting. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know whether maybe maybe they can be recurring storms, but uh, but I was gonna I was wondering I you made me think of um, an interview I did years ago with somebody who'd written a biography of Bill Clinton, mm-hmm. um, and he told me he wouldn't tell me what it was, but he told me that he had discovered one discovered something about Bill Clinton that he didn't put in the book, and he said the reason he didn't put it in the book was because he was worried that. Um, having that one fact in the book would basically be the story about the book and would kind of overshadow the sort of seven years of research he'd done into the life of Bill Clinton. Mm. And uh, even though this was kind of a mind-blowing fact, for him it wasn't sort of something which was particularly important to the character of Clinton. Um, Was there a a thought for you about the kind of the case of Louis C.K. that it was such a kind of uh, high-profile, controversial... Um, I guess, kind of hot button story that, uh, in a way, the your book about the comedy seller would become a book about Louis C.K. Or is there something about the 
the situation that Louis C.K. found himself in and the way that Noam handled it that so encapsulates something about the comedy cellar that it almost had to be be central to the, to the book. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd never not have put that in. Um, I, I, it, it, it's exactly as you say. Like it, it illustrated who Noam Dorman is so perfectly, his handling of that whole situation. That Yeah, I wanted that to be in, you know. Um, and I wanted it to lead off the book. I wanted it. I, if, if anything, I wish the book was a bit more kind of. Um, I, I'm not sure if kind of in, in the in the publicity and stuff. It was a tricky thing because you didn't want to be selling it off the back of the Louis C.K. Stand, scandal, you know. But I think maybe it needed to be more clearly explained to people that this is a big chunk of the book is discussing this complex issue, um, and then and then other issues as well. As opposed to just a book about a comedy club, you know. And um, no, so I, I think it was. I would never have not put it in, and I wanted to address it head on. And some of the comedians as well said, you know, I think some of them were worried that I was going to write a book, which was just like, tell me about that funny night you had at the comedy cellar, you know, haha. Mm -hmm. But and, and they said, you know, you've got to put this Louis C.K. stuff in there. You've got to address this because because a lot of them felt very uncomfortable about the way the club was suddenly being talked about and stuff. And, and mm -hmm. um, you know, they don't want to shy away from it. And I didn't want to shy away from. It. Yeah, yeah. Now that the um, now that the the book has come out, um, have you sort of do, do you feel you have come to some sort of uh, at least personal answers and personal sort of um, sense of a lot of the issues involved, like where you uh, where you stand on um, you know these particular issues of free speech or or something like that? Because what the reason I ask is because as I said in the introduction, one thing I particularly appreciated about the book is that it didn't feel to me that there was an explicit argument at the at the centre of it. It was more a kind of a presentation of the situation as seen by this cast of people more or less connected to the um to to the to the comedy centre and to some of the uh, the stories around it. So for, from a from a from a personal perspective, ha has the experience of writing and researching it sort of informed or shifted your position or is it has it made it even sort of more difficult to articulate, perhaps. Well, probably, <laughs> I probably sounded quite annoying on this interview because I don't know, I still don't know, I still don't have my mind made up about loads of this stuff, which is which is why I'm saying I, I just think I, I have to approach everything on an individual basis. What is this individual's intentions and, and you know, what was their behaviour? Um, and that's the only way I can, I can make my mind up about it. I, as soon as you start setting yourself a, a rule... It can quick, very quickly get broken, you know. And uh, yeah, I, I, I've never made my—I don't make my mind up about anything. Though, I don't think <laughs> I flip flop all over the place. Yeah. Which is perhaps actually um, sort of uh, in, in, in the current context a relatively sort of noble and uh, at least defensible position to adopt. Well, yeah, I mean, I, when I say flip flop, I don't like strongly agree with it. lots, you know, something and then strongly agree with something else. I just—I I think it's so except for individual cases then you can make a decision on it but even then you know once you start getting into the into the the, the weeds of detail it's so I'm, I'm a reporter and i've kind of been in court courtrooms a lot of the time and you you can have an opinion as much as you like about what's happening in a courtroom from outside that courtroom but until you sit there and listen to the evidence from both sides and see, hear it argued over you don't really understand what's going on in a particular case and um, if you're in the courtroom and you hear everything, then you do. And that, that's the way I feel about so much of this stuff, you know. 
it's easy to have a flippant opinion on stuff, but you really need to get into the detail of every individual case before you can uh, probably understand it and have an opinion on it. Yeah, which seems like a perfect place for us to leave it because we are out of time. Um, don't applaud, either laugh or don't is, of course, available from Shakespeare and Company, from uh, our online store, from our bricks and mortar store as well, and um, from your local neighbourhood independent bookstore, wherever wherever that may be. Um, Andrew Haggerton, all that remains for me to say is thank you so, so much for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. It's been great. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app, or just by recommending us to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Spotify, Apple or Patreon for just three euros a month. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by our resident jazz supremo, Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. I'll be back soon. Until then, take care, stay safe, and thanks again for listening.